So, kids up through fifth grade or so, now's the time to make your break if you want to go, and if your parents want you to go, it's time for children's church, so be gone. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. What a wild and weird week this has been. Uh, I'm not even counting the weather, which has now just moved into the stupid category. Um, I mean, just in our little church here, we have... much to be thankful for this week. Al continues to make great progress in his rehab. Um, He was due to be released this coming Wednesday. Uh, I think he is outpacing the nurses. And a room opened up in Tri-Cities, so he'll be released on Monday and will be in Tri-Cities sometime tomorrow. Uh, We are so grateful for the Lord's care and healing and provision for Al and his family. Let's keep them And our prayers, um, and after a bit of a scare for a few days, our good friend Tim. (laughs) All my friends are getting hit. I don't know what's happening. Uh, He's back with us. We're certainly grateful for that. And then on Friday, uh, Tim Oten's mom, Betty, passed. Uh, After a couple of difficult years with dementia, Betty was ready. And the family was ready. She was ready to meet her Lord and Savior. And Tim was telling the story that they they knew the end was was near. You know, there are those markers. And and so he, I think he yelled out Alexa to turn on music. And uh, It Is Well came on. And before the first verse ended, Betty was gone. So when peace like a river attends our way and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot taught me to say it's well with my soul. So that worked for Betty. It worked for the family. If you could script an ending, that's the way to go. So she is now physically and spiritually restored, and we are grateful for that. Um, And on top of all that, we get to gather together this morning to learn more about what God has revealed to us through his word and in the book of Revelation. So let's pray before we continue, shall we? Father God, we come before you today full of uh, awe and, and wonder and gratitude. Gratitude for all the things that I just have mentioned, the things that, that we've experienced this last week. We thank you for your healing hand, uh, your wisdom in guiding Al and, and Tim and, and families and medical teams and their continued recovery. Lord, we're grateful for your control over life and death, um, though it doesn't always make sense to us. We can find comfort in the fact that you are in control, and that leads us to awe and wonder, how you can guide large-scale, complicated, multi-layered world events and still show grace and compassion for just one of your children. Lord, may all of this gratitude and this awe and wonder, may it cause us to lean more into our time of worship this morning, uh, cause us to lean more into what you have for us in your word, help us see and hear what it is you have for us. And may our learning deepen our gratitude and our worship of your almighty name. 
And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our study of Revelation this morning. Uh, so first of all, let me thanks, uh, say thanks again to Randy, who uh, pinch hit for Al last week, um, and uh, homered. So that's always nice uh, when you can pick up some extra points. Um, and he talked about chapter 7, and it was kind of an odd, odd little chapter in there, in that it really is kind of a parenthetical. Uh, it, it's a, an interlude. It's a pause. Um, almost like an intermission in the plot of the story. But we learned it, it, it introduces the idea of the 144,000, which we believe in a similar fashion to much of what's included in John's vision. The 144,000 is a symbolic representation of the great multitude of believers that has been set apart and protected. They have been sealed to God as though we have it marked on our foreheads. Uh, And this metaphoric seal, probably not a literal mark on our foreheads, but this metaphoric seal of salvation assures us as followers of the Lamb that we are going to be protected from the wrath of God's eternal judgment. Now, again, some take this 144,000 to be literal, um, that you have to be uh, literally sealed and, and, and glorified, and then you'll be co-rulers with Christ. In fact, the Jehovah's Witness, for example, um, they taught for a long time that only the witnesses of Jehovah would be included in the 144,000. And that's all that would be allowed to reign with Christ for eternity. Well, as their church grew... And they passed 144,000. Then there were alternate explanations. So there's still just 144,000 that will rule with Christ in eternity, but everybody else will, will still be, have eternity on the new earth. Um, so when, when you start taking some of these things literally, it causes more difficulties and challenges as you move forward. Um, creates more difficulty in understanding, explaining the text. So let, let's take a look at where we are, how, how, this, uh, how this all fits together, this flow of exposition thus far. Chapter 6, you remember, was all about the opening of the seals, which, as we, dis- as we discussed, gives us a one perspective on what exactly has been going on in the world that we live in. Now, some suggest that the opening of the seals inaugurates the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation just before Christ turns, returns, which, which likely means that we've not yet really experienced the full weight of those seals. We don't really have any way of knowing. But our approach is that what's described in the seals is a period of tribulation, but it's one we've been dealing with for a long time now. It's not limited to a literal seven years. We have, in fact, been dealing with this period of tribulation, um, the effects of sin, the influence and the rage of Satan from the time of the fall in the garden, but it really became amplified post-crucifixion and post-resurrection. When Satan realized that he had, in fact, been defeated and that his time would come to an end. He ramped up his attacks. So we've been in this period of of tribulation since the resurrection. So the seals say that in this period of of tribulation, we will experience conquering and conquests and war and murder and mayhem and economic and civilizational upheaval, all of which we have experienced. I mean, think about how many great cultures have risen and fallen in our lifetimes, even in our lifetimes, but certainly over the course of history. We've dealt with famine and pestilence on a global scale. The four horsemen describe life on earth as we have known it. And there have been periods of increased activity for sure, but there have been periods of decreased activity as well. 
But as we get closer to the end, those periods of increase will increase and get bigger, and then we'll know the end is near. But it's hard to say with this long history. And then the fifth seal showed the saints, the martyrs, those who have already been impacted directly by the wickedness of the world. They cry out. They cry out, how long, O Lord, before you judge those who dwell on earth? How long before you deal with all of this? They're calling on the Lord to respond. And and the first five seals, some suggest, are are, are what many call the the church age. Uh, These events, the events that are described in seals one through five, really describe the direct impact on the church, on the faithful throughout the ages. It's persecution of all kinds, and trials and tribulations, death. And dead saints and living saints, they they have seen all this. They're still crying out, how long, O Lord? And maybe there's even a hint of those of us who are still living crying out, how long, O Lord? Maybe there's even a hint of, are you really going to judge? I mean, it's been kind of a while now. We've tried to be patient. When is this going to happen? And we're told, they're told, when the time is right. They're crying out, has the Lord responding when the last confession of faith has been made and the last martyr has been killed. That's when judgment will come. Well, then the sixth seal is open and it brings about what sounds like the destruction of the physical world, which answers the question, if God is going to judge, because he is, it still doesn't answer the question of when, at least not in the way that we want to know it. We get a pretty vivid description in Seal 6 of the, the sky turning dark and mountains and islands moving and, and the earth dwellers, the unsaved, um, is what that means. They're calling out for mountains to fall on them. They're calling out for the world to destroy them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. In chapter 6, Seal 6 ends with a question, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who's going to survive this destruction? The question is answered by chapter 7. It's found in this symbolic 144,000. And and Randy explained, 12 signifies the the completed order of people, the the completed order of God. So we've got this metaphoric 12 times 12 times 1,000, which just means a really big number. Also described as a great multitude consisting of people from all tribes and tongues and nations, standing before the throne, standing before the, the, the Lamb, clothed in white robes and crying out, salvation belongs to our God. They have been saved from this wrath. So the question was asked, who can stand? Who can survive this great judgment? It's, the, it's described in chapter 7. In fact, chapter 7, verse 14 says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So all those who lived for Christ, all those who died in the name of Christ, they will not only stand in the day of tribulation, but they will be eternally blessed. They'll be rewarded for their faith. These are the ones who have persevered and endured and overcome. Just as we were taught in the first seven letters to these seven churches. So chapter 7 answers the pleas and the questions of the saints. Who's going to survive the end of the age? It's believers. It's those who are protected and sealed for eternity. Although not necessarily physically protected, some may still die, but they'll be eternally protected. There'll be no more persecution, no more tribulation in heaven, and the Lamb will be in their midst. In chapter 7, verse 17 says, The Lamb will be in their midst, and he will be their shepherd. He will guide them to streams of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
That's the promise. That's the significance of chapter 7. This interlude serves as yet another reminder, just like chapters 4 and 5 did, that God is on his throne and he is in control. That the Lamb, part of the Trinity and working in conjunction with the Father, the Lamb controls the flow of history by opening the seals. And there will be both reward and judgment for how mankind deals with the issue of salvation. Whom will we worship? Our eternal destination hangs in the balance. So there's this pause between seal 6 and seal 7. Who or, or how can we survive the end of the age? We're told. And then we get to chapter 8, the conclusion to the series of the seven seals. First five verses. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So after this, this interlude of encouragement for the believer that we're going to be sealed and protected, which also serves as a warning for the unbeliever, we get back to the seals. And seal six ended with the world literally falling to pieces. That was the description. It was being destroyed. And here, the lamb opens the seventh seal. Notice it's still the lamb. He's still taking charge, still directing the flow of events. He opens the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Half an hour of silence feels like a long time. Now, it doesn't seem like there's really a whole lot going on here at the beginning. I mean, some argue that this period of silence really is an indication that the seventh seal doesn't really have any content. It just introduces the next series of judgments, the trumpets. I mean, if you're taking, a, again, a literal approach, the trumpets are what comes next. But the silence here is important. It's, it's biblically significant. In the Old Testament, silence is often an indication of God's judgment. In the book of Habakkuk, that prophet was disturbed about what he was seeing in the world and the culture around him. He asked the Lord directly, How long shall I cry for help? I see destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice never goes forth. Habakkuk is troubled. He asks what we all ask from time to time. Why are we? Why are we believers? Why are we the ones beset by challenges and temptations and trials? Why is it the unbelievers who seem to flourish and prosper? And we suffer and face hardship. How long must we endure? And the Lord responds to Habakkuk. In fact, he answers Habakkuk, if you go through and read the rest of that chapter, he answers in a series of woe statements. Not like woe, but W-O-E, woe. He says, woe to him who heaps, heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. So the Lord answers Habakkuk, and he basically says, you're right. 
Everything, everything you see, everything you're describing, you're right. It does look like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. And the wicked are prospering, and they might continue to prosper for a while. And the righteous are suffering, and the righteous may continue to suffer for a while. But don't be fooled. Judgment is coming. The Lord says, I I see it. I understand it. This current state of affairs will not last forever. Judgment will come. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, after laying out this list of woes, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And that silence meant that judgment was coming. Just wait, Habakkuk. I got this. In Zechariah, Israel had just returned from uh, Babylonian captivity back to their own land. But there was still a heavy Persian influence in the area. Israel was troubled. People were discouraged. They were wondering why the Lord had released them from Babylonian captivity only to have them struggle with Persians. They were discouraged and, and disheartened, and Zechariah was given a series of visions. One of the visions he was given showed a man with a measuring line measuring out the perimeter of Jerusalem. Fascinating image that will show up again in Revelation. And this assured Zechariah that Jerusalem would again be inhabited, that the Lord would be a wall around Jerusalem, and he would be the glory in her midst. That's what the text says. And it goes on to say that anyone who comes against Israel, anyone who touches the apple of the Lord's eye shall become plunder. Verse 2.12 says, The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. He will again choose Jerusalem. And then the next verse says, Be silent. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And that silence led to God's now stirred up. That means he's going to come against the wicked. He's going to protect his chosen. The Lord is going to act for the benefit of those he loves. That's the same kind of scene being portrayed here in the seventh seal. Followers of Christ have suffered. They had suffered. They are suffering. We will continue to suffer. And they cry out. We cry out. Oh, Lord, how long? How long, oh, Lord? But let's not mistake the Lord's silence for disinterest. Let's not mistake his delay for an unwillingness to act. When the Lord decides the time is right, then his justice will be let loose. So this silence is, is momentous. It's significant. It's all, ominous, really. It's, it's like the calm before the storm. I mean, just the idea of what the Lord's wrath is going to represent, what, what it means in this final seal, it causes silence in all of heaven for half an hour. Now, again, there's really no reason for us to conclude that about half an hour really means 29 minutes or 31 and a half minutes. It's meant to signify that there is a period of silence, a rather short period of silence. I mean, when your timeline is infinity, half an hour is kind of short. Later in the book, we're going to 
talk about years and millennium. And so in comparison to those, half hour is a, is a brief amount of time. So what we're to glean from this final stage is not watching our clocks, but it's the, the eventual and sure return of Jesus, and it's going to be breathtaking in its scope. So breathtaking, so ominous, so powerful, it prompts a moment of silence. We had an experience, uh, you know, I was thinking it was during the winter, which could have been like three weeks ago. But we were driving to Tri-Cities, and it was snowing, and the roads weren't great. And about 200 yards in front of us, we, we saw, saw this truck start fishtailing. It's one of those giant, oversized 4x4s that think they can ride through everything, right? He's going way too fast, and he starts fishtailing and sliding. And there's that moment where you go, <gasps> This is kind of that moment. The imminent outpouring of God's wrath elicits a moment of silence. And we saw what happened with the opening of seal six. It was the beginning of the end. It was the the final stage, the last straw. It was the second to last straw, as it turns out. Because after the period of silence, John then sees seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, this obviously sets up these seven trumpet judgments, which we'll start talking about next week. They come next in the order of the text, but not necessarily next in terms of time. But we'll get back to them next week. So this is just kind of a transition of sorts. It sets up for what's going to come next. But there are a couple of interesting things to mention here, I think. Notice first that the trumpets are given to the angels. So the accompanying judgments associated with the trumpets are still under the command and direction of God himself. He is still in control. Now we're not told who these angels are, just that they are in his presence. They're in close proximity to God. They stand before him. But since this scene kind of flows out of or follows on the heels of the prayers of the saints, the crying out of the martyrs. It seems logical. It seems interesting to think that these seven angels could be the same angels that are mentioned at the start of each of the letters to the churches. Remember, each of those seven letters started off with, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, to the angel of the church of Sardis. Every one of them had an angel somehow attached, whatever that means, we don't know. So perhaps these seven protector overseer angels are involved in the judgment to come against all of those who persecuted the churches. I mean, that would be a righteous kind of judgment, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be kind of a divine comeuppance? But this is just conjecture on our part. We don't know. It doesn't say. Don't start a church based on that. Don't start your own cult based on these seven trumpets and churches and angels. So the seven angels are given seven trumpets to be used in just a bit. And then John saw another angel come and stand at the altar with a golden censer. So remember the fifth seal told us how the souls of those who had been slain were gathered under the altar. There was no other description, no other reference to the altar at that time, just that it was there. So this seems to be a reference to that same altar. There is this altar there. It's in the presence of God. It's in the throne room. It's really close. But what's interesting here is the fact that there's just a single altar mentioned. 
in the Old Testament, throughout the temple period, there were always two altars. There was the outer blood sacrifice altar, and then there was the inner incense altar. The one that was right next to the most holy place. But here there's just the one altar. At least that's what it seems. And we know, based on these previous verses, that the lamb who was slain is here in heaven, in this throne room, in this scene. He's the one coordinating all these events. And because he had been slain, we're told his blood was shed once for all. There's no more need for a blood sacrifice altar. It's been done away with. And where God is, I mean, that's the most holy place, so there's no mention of a veil or a partition. or They're all right there in the, in the most holy place, in God's presence. So at this altar, we have just one angel with a golden censer, um, and a censer is just a, a bowl. It could be anything, pretty much. It's used to, to burn incense. It could be very simple, um, or it could be something much more ornate. This is described as a golden censer. It's probably a little more ornate than just a beaten bronze bowl. But the censer that the angel has apparently is empty. Because verse 3 says the angel was given the incense to burn. Again, God is in control. He's in charge. He is supplying what is, whatever is needed for the, the flow, outflow of history here. It also tells us the altar is gold. It's situated before the throne. And then we read that the smoke from the newly acquired incense is now mingled with the prayers of the saints. And it rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, again, we know on several occasions throughout Scripture, a good, a righteous sacrifice is described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was an acceptable sacrifice, and God would respond. So God, we're shown here, God is pleased to hear. He's pleased to respond to the cries and prayers of the saints on his timetable, in his way. Now, so far, this seems like a pretty straightforward narrative of what John sees. He's just recounting the events. But it's actually a little bit layered and just a little bit complicated symbolically because it starts to tie together lots of previous events, earlier elements. Back in chapter 5, verse 8, we read how the Lamb received the scroll, and when he had taken it, when he had received it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all fell down before the throne, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense which it said were the prayers of the saints. In chapter 6, we're told that the souls of the saints are calling out for justice. How long must we wait, O Lord? We're told about their, their, their pleas and their prayers. And then chapter 7 tells us how the faithful will be spared because the Lord's justice is at hand. And now we're being shown that the Lord is listening to, he, he is preparing to respond to the prayers of the saints. This all comes to the throne room. It flows through the throne room, and now God is preparing to respond. You can almost make an argument here that it's the prayers of the saints that are somehow integral, important. I don't want to say necessary, but these prayers are important to how God responds. After the burning of the incense and after the prayers of the saints are heard, then, in response, then the angel takes the censer and fills it with fire from the altar and throws it down to the earth. Now, this is fairly heavy, symbolically speaking. I mean, this this whole scene takes place 
in the throne room, right? And in these just five verses, God is mentioned twice and the Lamb is mentioned once. It's clear who is controlling this chain of events. You can't miss it. And this censor throwing is clearly meant to indicate that the whole earth is impacted. So if the opening of the sixth seal refers to the beginning of the end of the physical world, then the seventh seal is the end of the end of the physical world. And it symbolically occurs with the golden censer being thrown down to earth. Because we're told that immediately following that, there are peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And again, when we use scripture to help us understand scripture, we know that throughout the Bible, these terms are often used to describe the presence of God, the the response of God, the wrath of God. In Exodus, we read, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the people were afraid. Hard to miss the similarities here and the description of what we're seeing in Revelation. We started this morning reading the first six verses or so in Psalm 18. Here's how the rest of that psalm lays out. In my distress, David writes, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Again, not hard not to see this as the wrath of God. I mean, David says he was angry. And this is David crying out to the Lord, wondering when the Lord would deliver him from his enemies, namely Saul. But we start to see patterns emerge of how the Lord responds for the benefit of those he has chosen, of those who are protected and sealed. So this imminent and and seemingly cataclysmic judgment in seal 7 occurs just after chapter 7, where now we know the saints are sealed and protected. It's hard not to see this as the end of the age which makes it seem less likely that the seals, trumpets, and bowls all follow sequentially in time. If this, is the final, if this describes the final stage of the world, how much more final could trumpets or, or bowls be? Seals, trumpets, and bowls, it seems, and this is our approach, you can differ, that's okay. They're describing the same events, but from different perspectives. Now, when you get into the more literal application of some of these texts, these end-time descriptions have been fairly tortured to describe all kinds of things. Um, The the censor being cast down to earth. Some would suggest, well, that's clearly a nuclear blast. Or it's a great electromagnetic pulse that's going to bring the world to its figurative knees. Any number of other things have come up. 
this seems like a fairly significant stretch of the text. There's a lot that we're having to imply or infer here. But regardless of that, what happens is it misses the point that whatever occurs is at the express command and order and plan of God. However it happens, every description points to the power and sovereignty of God. So when we try to use Scripture to help explain Scripture, we start to see patterns like the ones we've already looked at from Habakkuk and Ezekiel and Psalms. The judgment of lightning and thunder and earthquakes come about because people would not bend their knee to God. So as Christians, it seems like we should be less enamored of how or when the world ends than why the world ends. And how we should be prepared to persevere, endure, and overcome it while also sharing the gospel with those who still have not believed. Now, the chart that Randy shared with us last week gave us some perspective on our, our approach here, our, our meanings and how this goes through. And you start to see here, there are really striking similarities. Here are the seals, trumpets, and bowls. They're all set in heaven. The first four judge, judgments are all grouped together. The first four are grouped together in every one of them. There are uh, judgments in five and six that are similar. It describes the portion of the earth that's affected. It describes the, how the dwellers on earth respond. There is an interlude in each of those periods of judgment, all occurring at the same place. So if, as we believe, the seals, bowls, and trumpets provide the same story, describe the same events, but from different perspectives, it should become clear. And those things do line up. It should also be clear in the text. So let me, let me jump ahead just a little bit. The seventh trumpet, Revelation eleven nineteen says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. Sounds an awful lot like seal seven. Thunder and rumblings and lightning and an earthquake. So it, it starts to kind of tie things together. And I also find this interesting. Did you, did you notice when we read through that, that text in Exodus? Um, that along with thunder and lightning that announced God's presence, there was a loud trumpet blast. We'll discuss that more next week also. But throughout the Bible, we know that trumpets were often used to announce something important. They were used to warn of impending judgment. So whether we're talking about seals, bowls, or trumpets, people have been warned. Throughout this period of tribulation, people have been warned. We've seen it with the sealed judgments. We'll see it with the trumpets. People were warned to repent, and they preferred to continue in their rebellion. Even when it came time to die, they'd rather have mountains fall on them than bow the knee to God. So even though these, these five verses here are less dramatic, perhaps, than other sections that we're going to cover, um, I mean, they include a period of nothing, just silence, there are a couple things that jumped out at me here that I think are, are fairly significant. And the first one is, we should never believe the, the lie that God does not listen to our prayer. We should never assume that God does not hear or does not care about his creation in general, or you in particular, just because we don't see an immediate response. In the middle of our deepest pain, in the middle of your deepest trial, when you cry out, God, where are you? Like those early churches cried out, like martyrs throughout the ages have cried out, God, where are you? 
we're shown here that our prayers are not only heard, but they have power behind them. Our prayers somehow help institute or bring about divine justice. The prayers of the saints rise before God, and God responds. I think you could argue we've seen a lot of answered prayer in our body here the last couple of weeks. Now, the hard part is that even as smart as we think we are, God just doesn't do things the way we tell him to. And it's irritating. It's frustrating as all get out. It's painful. And in extreme cases, we're not even saved from death. We might, we might be joining the, the martyred saints gathered under the altar before Jesus comes back. I'm all right with that. But he will respond. The Lord will respond. And when he does, the time will be right. Justice will be fair and swift. And we can trust that completely. Which brings up the second thing for us to consider. This text does show us that cumulative prayers of the saints helps initiate God's response, but it also shows us that the prayers of the martyrs, the prayers that help bring about God's justice, seem to be prayers for the saints that are still suffering. How long must they suffer, the text reads. I mean, the martyrs, the ones under the altar, they're they're dead. They're not praying for themselves. They're fine now. They're praying for the benefit of others. They're in heaven. Their their effective praying, their powerful prayers are centered on, they're focused on those who are still suffering. So perhaps the real power of those prayers is that they're not self-focused or self-directed, but their prayers offered on behalf of others. And I think this poses a challenge for us. I think this poses a challenge for me. And I dare say we've all been guilty of starting our prayer time by starting with our long list of grievances with the Lord that affect us. Praying for an end to our pain, praying for an end to our suffering, our bad job, our awful neighbor who, why won't they move? The housing market's so good right now. And then eventually we'll get around to the prayers for needs of others, you know, if we have time. And for the most part, it turns out that our personal self-directed prayers, our felt needs or wants, often pale in comparison to what others may be experiencing or going through. So when we pray for others first, it starts to make us more selfless and less selfish. It turns our focus outward to see how we can help others, how we can better love and serve God and man. And how we can be less self-absorbed. We all need a little bit of that every now and again. We can and should bring our petitions and our prayers before the Lord who hears us. He will act on our behalf. But there seems to be power in our prayers for others. I was really kind of struck this week, <clears throat> this week, last week, by this recurring image of heaven and, and the lamb who is slain being in the midst of all of this. He's, he's the prime mover in, in all of these events. And, and then I was struck this week by the lone altar in heaven. Which means 
the lack of a secondary, now unnecessary, altar for blood sacrifice because Jesus died once for all. He died to bring about our eternal redemption because he died and he was resurrected on, on our behalf. His sacrifice, we're told, made him worthy to take his place in heaven. And his sacrifice can make us worthy to stand with him. We'll never get there on our own. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we accept his gift of grace and redemption, we can be worthy. And you all know you. You know you're not. But you can be. You're considered worthy. So it's communion communion time this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up, and they're going to play a song as we pass out elements. So I'd encourage you just to take a few minutes to reflect and pray. Do, do you believe, have you made the confession that Jesus is Lord? Because communion is meant, is meant for believers. If you've not made that confession, I would just encourage you not to take it. If you haven't made the confession that Jesus is Lord, if you've not committed your life to living to be more Christ-like, um, but you're interested, come see me afterwards. I'm happy to talk to you about it, as are lots of other people here. Talk to somebody you're, you're comfortable with. This is a time for us to remember that Jesus died for us. There's nothing more that we need to do than accept his sacrifice. So I'll pray. Team, you can come forward. And just hold the elements if you would, and then we'll take them together once we're ready. Lord, we're grateful for this time this morning. We're grateful again for all the ways that we've seen you at work in this last uh, weeks and, and months even. This has been um, been a difficult stretch. Um, but there is always comfort in knowing that you are in control. There's always comfort in knowing that no matter how bad it may get here, there is a better time coming. And we can rejoice with, with Betty this morning, with the Oten family, knowing that her better time has come. Lord, I, I pray that we, as we look forward to that, um, we also realize that there's work here for us to do. Uh, work on our own spiritual journey that we, we continue to grow uh, more into Christ-likeness. We, we continue to be more committed to following you, um, but we also become more committed in sharing the good news with others. We are here for that purpose, to be ambassadors for the sake of the gospel. So I pray that you encourage us, that you equip us, that you give us courage to share the gospel, to share the good news with those around us. And we thank you this morning for the sacrifice that you've made on our behalf and for confidence in the fact that no matter what sins we have committed, what sins we may continue to commit, Lord, that they can be forgiven, that you've died once for all in our place, and we can someday stand worthy in the throne room. So we pray for these uh, few minutes here that you help us search our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. If there are any sins that need to be confessed, if there are any issues that need to be resolved, Lord, I pray this would be the time to do it so that we come to communion remembering your great love and your great sacrifice for us.